We've got lots of big stories and guests for you today. We're talking about the SNP conference, the latest from the war in Ukraine. And for the second half of the show, I'll be joined once again by the one and only Ash Sarkar. Me and Ash will be talking about Liz Truss's hat-trick of U-turns and the latest twisted ramblings from Britain's Home Secretary, as worrying as they have ever been. This afternoon, Nicola Sturgeon gave her speech to the SNP party conference in Aberdeen. It's the first time the SNP have met since the coronavirus pandemic. And Sturgeon didn't go easy on the Tories. The current Home Secretary, speaking at the Conservative Party conference, said this about asylum seekers. And even as I quote her, I struggle to comprehend that she actually said these words. But here they are. I would love to be having a front page of the Telegraph with a plane taking off to Rwanda. That's my dream. It's my obsession. Conference, my dream is very different. I'm sure it is shared in this hall and by the vast majority across Scotland. My dream is that we live in a world where those fleeing violence and oppression are shown compassion and treated like human beings, not shown the door and bundled onto planes like unwanted cargo. It took the Tories three years, three long years, to realise that Boris Johnson was a disaster. With less trust, it took them just three weeks. She caused mayhem in the markets with her decision to borrow billions of pounds to fund tax cuts for the richest. Borrowing to be repaid by eye-watering austerity cuts and a raid on the incomes of the poorest. It is unconscionable. The Prime Minister's justification is that she is going for growth. Conference, let me tell you what kind of growth that will be. Growth in the gap between rich and poor. Growth in the rates of poverty. Growth in the pressure on our NHS and other public services. And without any doubt, growth in the deep disgust that the public feel for all of it. She is, I think, probably without a doubt, the best speaker in UK politics at the moment and has been for, for a long time. And the speech comes on the week the Supreme Court is set to rule on whether Scotland can legislate for a second independence referendum. And some of the biggest applause came when Sturgeon reaffirmed the SNP's plans for if they do get the go-ahead. Now, over the next two days, the Supreme Court will consider whether the current law allows the Scottish Parliament to legislate for an advisory referendum. If Westminster had any respect at all for Scottish democracy, this court hearing would not be necessary. But Westminster has no such respect. That means this issue was always destined to end up in court sooner or later. Better in my view that it is sooner. If the court decides if the court decides in the way we hope it does, on 19th October next year, there will be an independence referendum. (laughs) 
So are we set for a second independence referendum in 2023? And what else have we learned from the SNP conference in Aberdeen? I'm joined now by Jonathan Shaffey, who runs the newsletter Independence Captured, where he writes about Scottish independence from a socialist perspective. Jonathan, welcome to the show. What was significant in today's speech from Nicola Sturgeon? I think you you put it right. Nicola Sturgeon is clearly a very good presenter, a very good communicator. And if you're watching uh, that speech in England uh, in particular, um, it must come as a, as a breath of fresh air. Uh, but if you're in Scotland and if you, like me, have been charting the SNP, the policy of the SNP, and indeed uh, sat through Nicola Sturgeon's speeches, um, every one of them since she's taken on the leadership of the party, uh, then you can come to some other conclusions, uh, mainly that the rhetoric very rarely meets the reality. And there's a whole number of examples we could go through. But on the question of whether or not there's going to be a referendum uh, next year, I mean, this is something that we've been hearing every year since Nicola Sturgeon's taken over, uh, practically uh, barring the the pandemic. So um, I don't think there's going to be a referendum next year. I think the Supreme Court will um, say um, or or will will give a ruling uh, that won't allow that to happen. Uh, But even if it does, it would be an advisory referendum, which... Uh, I suspect the the unionist parties would simply boycott. You're in favour of independence, of course. Does that mean you're kind of criticising Nicola Sturgeon for not being forthright enough in demanding a referendum? Do you think she's all talk and that she should be taking more more radical action, potentially organising one without the permission of, of the UK courts? Yeah, I mean, I think the key to understanding the SNP and its relationship to an independence referendum is to view a, a, a referendum or the idea of a referendum as being a a very useful electoral tool for the SNP. It's been extremely useful to shore up the national question at various points in time. If you look at the next general election, which, by the way, I think uh, most of the framing of today's speech is is really about, um, the SNP will seek to polarise the Scottish electorate over the question of the national question, bringing votes towards the SNP, in order to offset the idea of uh, a Labour versus Tory election, where we're looking at the Tories being removed from power. So the SNP very skillfully, very tactically deploy independence, deploy the idea of a referendum as a means to shore up support elections, but also to camouflage often failing uh, domestic policy at the same time. And you've talked about failing domestic policy. I mean, again, you're probably going to think, you know, we're we're naive outsiders looking on with tinted glasses. But we've talked about on this show, you know, Nicola Sturgeon introducing rent controls, Obviously, she was talking in a progressive way about migration. That's quite easy because she doesn't have control over migration. It's easy to sound progressive when you don't have you know, the jurisdiction over it. But on rent controls, that does seem progressive. She also mentioned in that speech increased child payments. You don't buy that she's a genuinely sort of social democratic first minister. I think what we've got to bear in mind here is the SNP have near absolute political hegemony in Scotland. I mean, they have unrivaled political power and have done for years. And so you have to look at the balance sheet and say, well, what have they actually done of any structural importance? They've been selling off uh, Scottish wind power to the likes of Shell and BP. Uh, they haven't reformed the council tax as they promised to. Their, their work on land reform is extremely limited. Even the prospectus for independence has been farmed out to Scotland's corporate lobby sector. And at the end of the day, when you add all that together and you throw in things like their support for free ports, despite the fact that they pose Brexit, largely, again, on rhetorical grounds because it's useful uh, to shore up their own votes, um, then then you can come to a conclusion which really is that this is a managerial party, very middle of the road, and uh, in my view, we'll see a Labour government before we see independence. 
Let's look at the story that's dominated coverage in the, the UK press. You can tell me whether or not it's, it's got quite so much attention in the Scottish press. And it involves something Nicola Sturgeon said on the BBC yesterday. So she was asked by Laura Koonsberg if she'd be willing to work cooperatively with Liz Truss. And she said this. Is Liz Truss a friend or a foe? We're political opponents, but I've always tried to work with her predecessors and I will try to work with her. So I would like to be a friend on the basis of uh, the areas where we can work together constructively. And what about Keir Starmer, friend or foe? I work very well with Keir Starmer over Brexit. I'm really disappointed that Keir Starmer um, has thrown in the towel on uh, the European Union and no longer wants to take the UK or Scotland back into the and European Union. who would you Union. rather have as Prime Minister? Well, that's not a difficult question. I mean, if the question to me is, would I prefer a Labour government over a Tory government, I detest the Tories and everything they stand for. So it's not difficult to answer that question. Uh, so so yes, you, guys, you want to see Chris Starmer you know, in what say, Two things, two things. Firstly, you know, being better than the Tories is not a high bar to cross right now. I think we need to see more of a radical alternative from Labour rather than just a pale imitation. And if you're asking me, do I think either a Westminster Tory government or a Westminster Labour government is good enough for Scotland, then my answer to that question is no. There then followed a pretty silly cycle of outrage about Sturgeon, having said that she detested the Tories. It was started by Nadim Zahawi speaking on the same BBC show. We don't want to see Keir Starmer with Nicola Sturgeon, who, who, who now talks about detesting the Conservatives. I think that language is really uh, dangerous. I prefer to work with my colleagues in Scotland on delivering the free ports, the green ports. That was the Tories, the party who dream about sending refugees to Rwanda, talking about dangerous language. Nicola Sturgeon, though, had a strong response. You told me last week that the big controversy out of the SNP conference would be that I had said that I didn't much like Conservative Party policies then. I might have thought the rest of the conference must be going really well if that is the story out of the conference. I spent a political lifetime arguing against the Tories. I grew up in the west of Scotland in the 1980s. There are people that I grew up with that are still living with the damage the Tories did then and they're doing it all over again. So in answer to your question, will I apologise for saying uh, that I don't support and don't much like the policies of the Conservative Party? No, I won't. So as I say, that's the story which has dominated the coverage of the SNP conference from, I mean, journalists that usually work in Westminster. Jonathan, I want to know if this is, is this a big deal in Scotland? Is anyone talking about whether it was okay for Nicola Sturgeon to say she detests the Tories. This is one of those moments where if I had here, I would tear it out uh, for the simple reason that there is actually a serious policy discussion to be had. There are serious questions that need to be scrutinised around how Scotland's been governed. There are big questions around the independence strategy. And yet it seems that we've been on a media cycle in the middle of the SNP conference about whether or not it's okay to detest the Tories. Now, of course, this is all red meat towards Nicola Sturgeon, bearing in mind that the day before, the big criticism of the SNP conference was that speakers were uh, focused more on the idea of opposing Labour than they were of opposing the Tories. So this was fantastic for the SNP, fantastic for Nicola Sturgeon, uh, terrible for politics, terrible for the kind of discussion that we need to be having. It's unfortunately something that is all too common in the media at the present moment good to have a discussion like this where we can be more critical about it. But yeah, I mean, it's just been a pointless discussion and uh, it's wasted time, which should have been far better spent. I suppose the substance of that answer, so moving away from whether or not it's okay to say one detests the Tories, I mean, I agree with you, this is kind of a, a stupid talking point that's got more airtime than it needs to. But the substance of that point was basically Nicola Sturgeon saying, 
she doesn't want to see a Tory government. And I, I think the subtext is she will do anything to stop that happening. And so therefore, you know, she would back Labour in the next general election, either, you know, in a supply, confidence and supply sort of arrangement so they can form a minority government or try and form some kind of coalition. She's basically saying, you know, a vote for the SNP will not let the Tories in. Do you sort of believe her on that front? Do you, do you think that the SNP will do whatever it takes to stop the Tories um, getting back into power in, in 2024? And how would that kind of negotiation between the SNP and the parties in Westminster work? I think they will have little option. I don't think they'll have any real alternative other than if their votes are required to ensure that there's not a Tory government, they'll they'll have to use them in, in Labour's direction. They may, though, say that this is a, a point of negotiation around things like a referendum or around other matters which, which they see as important. But this is, I think, where things are going. Rather than going towards a referendum, I think the SNP is gearing up for a general election, a general election where the big contest will be between Labour and Tory. In 2017, it must be said, the SNP lost a raft of seats uh, they also won uh, a lot of seats by small margins. Um, of course, that was the, the election where Jeremy Corbyn did uh, did relatively well. Uh, now we're looking at a situation where there's every possibility of removing the Tories from power. Now, if people don't think the SNP are serious about independence, then why vote for them when you can vote for Labour and remove the Tories from power? So the SNP are going to ramp up the rhetoric around independence. They're going to ramp up the idea of the next general election being a de facto referendum. But in reality, this is an electoral ploy rather than a real independent strategy. And that is unfortunately sorely lacking. Russia has carried out a fresh offensive against Ukraine with 83 missiles launched at cities across the country. This map from the Times shows that targets range from Lviv in the far west of the country to Kharkiv in the east with several strikes on the capital Kiev. The Ukrainian military claims to have intercepted at least 40 missiles before they could reach their targets. The attack came just hours after Vladimir Putin accused Ukraine of carrying out a, quote, terrorist attack on Russian civilian infrastructure. The Kerch Bridge was hit by a large explosion early on Saturday morning. It was built by Putin after Russia's 2014 annexation of Crimea, and it links the Crimean Peninsula with Russia. The explosion caused a train carrying fuel to catch fire and collapsed part of the road bridge into the sea. Russia claims the explosion was the result of a truck bomb, but that remains unconfirmed. For their part, Ukrainian officials were overjoyed by the attack on the bridge, though they haven't claimed responsibility for it. The Kremlin has called its latest attacks on Kyiv and other Ukrainian cities a retaliation, the Kerch Bridge explosion. As for those attacks, Russia has claimed the targets were infrastructure relating to military communications and energy. But as you can see here, civilian targets were also hit by Putin's missiles, including a pedestrian bridge in Kyiv. Apartment blocks and even children's playgrounds were also targeted. Ukrainian officials report that at least 11 people have been killed in the strikes, with 60 people seriously injured. It's the first time that Kyiv has been attacked by Russia since June, and it appears to mark a clear escalation of the war. Earlier today, I spoke to Taras Vadirko, a British Academy Research Fellow at the University of St Andrews, specialising in the politics of Ukraine. I asked him to explain the significance of the explosion on the Kerch Bridge. Well, I think there's two aspects to it. As with much that's been going on on the battlefield in Ukraine um, and in occupied territories, one is symbolic, the other is in terms of military logistics. So symbolically, you know, this is an explosion that takes place a day after Putin's birthday at an infrastructural project, which was a hallmark of 
Russians' expansion um, into Ukraine since 2014. This is something that was presented as an, a major achievement of the Russian state in Crimea and kind of a, a gift almost to Crimea as a result of the annexation. So it's a major humiliation and, and I think it's been read as a provocation in Russia, specifically by Putin and ruling elites and also the military blogger entourage. From the point of view of logistics, it's hard to tell. I mean, I think the expectation was that it would disrupt um, the supply of the group of Russian forces in Crimea and potentially in southern Ukraine. Uh, whether that has happened, to what degree that has happened, we don't know, because there is, it's said that uh, the railway connection has been restored and it's only one of the, the, the automobile ways that has been destroyed and the other is in operation. Do we yet know who carried it out and how it was carried out? I think the Russians are claiming it was a it was a truck bomb. Do we have any confirmation either way? I think there's a visual confirmation that it was a truck bomb. Uh, there's been footage of the explosion released um, in the Russian media, and I think it seems that it's genuine. Um, it is unclear how exactly the bomb ended up in the truck, especially given that the truck has been uh, had been checked um, on the entrance of the bridge, on the bridgehead on the uh, side of the Russian Federation. Uh, we do not know, uh, however, who carried it out. It is unclear whether it is actually the Ukrainian side that did it, because no one took responsibility for it and no one claimed it as, as their own. Russia claims that this is Ukrainian intelligence services. There was an unnamed source uh, speaking to a Ukrainian website, Ukrainska Pravda, saying that it was the state security service of Ukraine. But this is quite an unreliable report and it, it has not been confirmed. So it could have been, if it was Ukraine, it could have been one of the intelligence services involved in uh, resistance to, to Russian occupation, Russian invasion. It could have been the, the main intelligence directorate. It could have been state security services. But so far, it is unclear whether actually it was indeed Ukraine carrying it out. And Putin's response has been to bomb Kiev and other Ukrainian cities, including civilian targets. I mean, do you have a sense of what he's trying to achieve with this and how the Ukrainians will respond to this? Uh, well, I mean, beyond the immediate damage to civilian infrastructure, you know, it's over 80 rockets and 120 drones launched onto, onto Ukraine. And there's dozens of victims and, and, and around 100 uh, wounded. It is unclear what has been achieved. I mean, it, it was said that, uh, said that the attack has been onto um, kind of targeting um, energy and critical infrastructure and military targets. However, you know, from just from this confirmed strike site, it's clear that it's been significant cultural sites, you know, university, museums, bridge in Kiev, and so on and so forth, as well as energy infrastructure, for example, a uh, power plant in Kiev. What kind of damage this will do in the long term is not clear. I mean, it seems that Ukraine is defined and that this has not affected our, uh, Ukraine's capacity to fight. I mean, the targets have not been military targets, and that's clear. My sense is that this suggests that the audience for the strikes was domestic for Russia. So Putin has come under in more and more intense criticism from the hard imperialist right, kind of the military bloggers and, and others who remain mobilized, you know, the mobilized part of Russian civil society or militarized civil society that supported the war and called for harder and harder measures. It seems to me that one of the goals of the strikes was to demonstrate domestically a certain kind of resolve in responding and retaliating for uh, the Crimean bridge attack. And we seem now to be in a cycle of escalation, which seems, you know, it's difficult to know where it's going to go or how it might be, 
how it might end, how, how de-escalation would be possible in this situation. You've got the Ukrainians fighting for their survival. Putin, I think, probably fighting for his personal survival. One side obviously has nuclear weapons. Where do you see this going uh, at this point in time? I'm pessimistic, but I think the the debate has on de-escalation and on uh, peace negotiated settlement has focused understandably on creating conditions so that Ukraine can back down. For Ukrainians, this is an existential question. I think what we should talk about under the current conditions is that Putin seems to be increasingly locked into a position where there is less and less space for maneuver. Um, this is entirely, almost entirely of his own making and the making of the elites that support the war. And is currently in a situation when hard militaristic right is demanding harder responses to the war. In a situation when the Russian military has suffered several humiliating defeats and, uh, and retreated in Ukraine, the goals of the operation, Russia's operation in Ukraine, aren't clear and they have not been achieved. So in the face of all this defeat and criticism from within, you have the mobilized part of, um, of the military and of the militarized civil society in Russia, all of that creates a, a quite a dangerous situation that Putin might find it hard to back down, which is part of what's needed for any kind of negotiated peace settlement, because it's clear that Ukraine will not accept unilateral defeat or, or giving up its territories. And I think that is just that it should be so. So I, I would really welcome any diplomatic, potentially private initiatives that would try and reach out to parts of Russian elites that might not be supporting Putin and might be actually dissatisfied with this position because, you know, there's been rumors that, that uh, Putin and his entourage are afraid of a military coup or of any kind of coup. There's a chance that if that happens, it might be replaced with someone even more radical. And I think it's quite important that that doesn't happen, that either regime, Putin's regime, is willing to, becomes willing to negotiate and finds a kind of a face-saving face solution, or that Putin is replaced with someone who is more malleable and willing to back down and, control, and, and kind of rein, rein the hard right in Russia in control. One part of your answer, the question that follows from it is, is there a solution that could be potentially face-saving for Vladimir Putin that people in Ukraine could accept? I mean, Crimea is, is an obvious example here. It seems now that the Ukrainians and Zelensky are talking about getting all of their territory back before any sort of peace negotiation. I mean, Vladimir Putin, I, I, I doubt he would accept losing Crimea. Is there any route towards some kind of agreement that you think both the Ukrainians and Putin could well, Putin could accept, or at least Putin could sell to the Russians while still not ha having to give up his position as president? It's hard to tell, and I think it does depend on the outcome in the battlefield. It's harder and harder to see it, uh, an outcome like that. I think uh, one reason why President Zelensky and Ukrainian leaders have been talking about uh, reclaiming all of the territory, uh, including Crimea and the two breakaway uh, puppet republics, is been because... This has been an accepted rhetoric in Ukraine since 2014, and it has masked at different points very different and often conciliatory positions of the Ukrainian government towards both the separatists and, and Russia. I think if there is a return uh, on Russian side to pre-February 24 pre-invasion positions, that is, you know, Russian military out of the territory of Ukraine, that potentially the rebel republics and Crimea remain where they are without uh, Ukraine taking them over, there might be some kind of willingness or some temptation for the Ukrainian leadership to negotiate with that. But it's clear that um, they have tasted, you know, they have understood that they can be effective on the battlefield and the military option remains on the table. And I think a large part of 
the, the Ukrainian leadership and people of Ukraine understand that if Putin's regime stays in power after this, it is not clear whether or not they wouldn't attack again as a reprisal in, in, you know, in a year's time and after uh, some kind of regroupment and resupply, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, we are in a difficult situation um, with negotiations, and this is not just a result of um, you know, someone skimming behind the scenes trying to undermine the, the negotiations, trying to undermine a peace settlement. is purely a result of the way in which the war has been waged, and I think Russia is the main culprit for this. That was Taras Fadirko speaking to me earlier today. And for the rest of the show, I'm joined by Ash Sarkar. Ash, great to have hey. you back. I've missed you. I believe you're joining us from Oaxaca in Mexico. How did that happen? Yeah, well, look, I took one glance at that mini budget and I thought I'm getting out of here as quickly as possible, only to see the sterling take a nosedive. So uh, hopefully I can bring back some pesos with me and pay my heating bills come November. Let's go to our next story. As she tries to settle the nerves of Tory MPs and calm the markets, Liz Truss has become an expert on the U-turn a point put to her rather brutally by Beth Rigby on Sky. You've been in power for 28 days, but 10 of those politics was paused. In 18 days then, you announced £45 billion of tax cuts without setting a fiscal framework. It precipitated a £65 billion emergency bond buying programme by the Bank of England to protect pension funds, the pound tanked. A thousand mortgage deals were withdrawn from the markets as interest rate rates expectations spiked. You established a 33-point lead for Labour in the polls. And now the lady not for turning has announced a massive U-turn on a policy. This is surely the worst start of any prime minister. That was brutal. Oh, I think that clip's been seen about a million times um, now on various social media platforms because it was just Beth Rigby reading out everything that Liz Truss had done wrong. And I think just talking about the space of time in which it all happened was just... Yeah, very satisfying to watch, really. Beth Rigby there was referring to the U-turn, which was made at party conference. That was on the 45p tax rate, but there have been many more since. The first, and perhaps most significant, is on benefits up rating. While Rishi Sunak had promised benefits would rise in line with inflation, it had been reported that the trust government was only planning to increase them in line with earnings. Nick Ferrari challenged her on this at Tory conference. Yesterday, you said that pensions will rise in line with inflation, but not the same, it would appear, with benefits. Why are pensioners more important than those who are on benefits? Well, I committed during the leadership election campaign that we would protect the triple lock, which means that pensioners yes. uh, get either 2.5% prices or wages, whichever is the higher. And it's very difficult when you are a pensioner to adjust your income in any way. Um, people are facing higher prices. Of course, what we're doing on the energy price guarantee will help people uh, with those prices. Right. Now, but those in receipt no of benefits. decision has been made yet on benefit uprating. That decision will be taken in due but, course. But I will repeat that. So why are pensioners more important than those in receipt of benefits? Well, they they can rest assured. People are in a different situation. Uh, depending on which stage of life they're in. And I think it is right that we made a commitment to pensioners that we would protect the triple lock. I'm sticking with that commitment. As I've said, no decision so, so, is so being made. So someone in their Nick. 70s is more important than a young mum with two kids? 
I'm not saying that at but all. But you just said um, eight different ages in their life. What did you mean, Prime Minister? Well, what I mean is when, when people are on a fixed income, when they're pensioners, it is quite hard to adjust. I think it's a different situation for people who are in the position to, to be able to work. So Liz Truss was refusing to commit to a specific policy on benefits, but it was clear she was laying the ground for treating those of working age very differently to pensioners. But thankfully, according to The Guardian, she's now on the brink of a U-turn. They suggest that a potential Tory rebellion has changed her mind. Another confirmed U-turn involves senior personnel. When he became Chancellor, Kwasi Kwarteng controversially sacked the most senior civil servant at the Treasury, and he had planned to replace them with an outsider called Antonia Romeo. That plan has now changed. An official from within the Treasury will be appointed to the top job. This is how the Financial Times characterised the shift. So they write, appointing Romeo as permanent secretary initially appeared to have the Prime Minister's support and was symbolic of her plans to challenge economic orthodoxy at the Treasury. But over the weekend, Trust dramatically reversed course, according to senior government figures briefed on the matter, and is now expected to instead appoint someone as the Treasury's top civil servant with years of experience of working at the Finance Ministry. She is now adopting a much more cautious approach as she attempts to persuade Tory colleagues and the markets that she has a grip. And there's a third U-turn. The government had initially said that they would reveal their plans on how to fund £45 billion in tax cuts on the 23rd of November. Due to panic on the markets and panic on the Tory benches, that's now been moved to the 31st of October. The Treasury announced that on that new date, we'd also get a forecast from the Office for Budget Responsibility. So yes, to unspook the markets, the Tories have planned another fiscal event on Halloween. Ash, U-turn after U-turn after U-turn. Is the Liz Trust government already out of control? Is her authority gone to the point where she can't really implement her wishes at all? I think it's going to be really difficult for her to recover her authority. And there are some structural reasons for that. The first thing is that Liz Truss has somehow managed to be the first Conservative Prime Minister in history to go without a honeymoon period. And it's because she cocked things up so spectacularly that she lost the lobby very early on. She's going to have to work against the grain to get them back. The second thing is that she's also managed to achieve something that every Labour leader since Gordon Brown has only dreamt of, which is create a set of shared economic interests between pensioners, homeowners, renters, benefits claimants, those in work and those out of work. And again, it's because her mini budget was this broadside against everybody. People talk a lot about the fact that in 2019, I think it was half of all Tory voters owned their own home outright. And I think that's something which is really relevant when you want to look at the differences in voting behaviour from 2001 onwards, the distribution of home ownership. But another thing to bear in mind is that financially waterboarding the other half of your electoral coalition is not smart politics. So you've got Homeowners who are still paying off their mortgages being impacted by interest rates. You've got the, you know, state of the kilts market threatening pensions. You've got inflation eating into everybody's incomes. And you've also got these really quite punishing real terms cuts in benefits. What that does is create essentially a coalition who are united in being you know, in, in their opposition or at least their, their lack of interest in a conservative economic platform. 
So that's where the sort of structural weakness of Liz Truss is coming from, where she can't just push things through because she's lost the lobby. And the Conservative Party, one of the reasons why they're such an effective election winning machine is that they will rally around someone who's popular, really regardless of who they are or what they're doing. And they are also mutinous when it comes to those who are polling badly. So that is a very dicey position for Liz Truss to be in. And I think that's why, you know, you've got this sense of a dog drowning in a paddling pool from her. She's finding it really hard to get a grip and control the narrative. I've seen that stat about, you know, half of people who own their homes own them outright, which means they're, of course, not affected by interest rates, making mortgages more expensive. They will, though, have pensions, right? And I think what what was remarkable, what the Tories managed to do was make it really clear that your pension is not safe with the Conservative Party because they announced their mini budget. And then on the Monday, it seemed like a bunch of pension funds were going to collapse. That's why the Bank of England had to intervene. So th- there is there are very few people untouched um, by the Tories' incompetence on this, which is why, you know, it's bizarre they've gone to war with everyone, even their base, and for no apparent reason. It's all in the interests of helping rich people. But even rich people aren't sure about this. Very, very bizarre. The one thing that Truss isn't U-turning on is probably the daftest of her promises, and that's to stop the building of new solar farms. Land in England is earmarked as suitable for farming if it meets the standards of something called best and most versatile, or BMV land, and development of BMV land is generally not allowed. But now, the new Environment Secretary has decided to expand the definition of BMV land to include most of the land that could otherwise have been used for solar farms. If their changes go through, solar farms will be banned from 58% of English agricultural land. When asked about the story, the Prime Minister's spokesperson said this, I can point you back to what the Prime Minister said, I think at the start of September, when she said she doesn't think we should be putting solar panels on productive agricultural lands, because obviously, as well as the energy security issue, we face a food security issue, so we need to strike the right balance. Ash. I mean, I know you're in Mexico. I'm sure you've heard Liz Truss you know, wang on about the anti-growth coalition. If she is now blocking solar farms on you know, land, which is not particularly, you know, it's not, not the best of the best, she's joined it, hasn't she? Liz Truss operates in the interests of the fossil fuel lobby. She used to work for Shell. She is a headbanger when it comes to fracking. And that's despite the fact that pretty much everyone recognises that the cheapest forms of generating electricity in the UK are solar and offshore and onshore wind. Fracking is, as well as being you know, hugely polluting and detrimental to the environment, is also relatively inefficient compared to those things. So that's where this is coming from. It's got nothing to do with even what's popular with conservative voters, let alone with what the country needs. Um, a point which I saw being made on Twitter, and I think this is something which is important to um, take note of, is when you're talking about land use for agriculture, Different kinds of land use deliver different efficiencies. So it's relatively inefficient to use loads of farmland for grazing animals. And I say this as someone, I'm not vegan, I'm not vegetarian, I do eat meat, but using land for the purposes of rearing livestock is relatively inefficient when you compare it to, uh, you know, cultivating land for the purposes of grains, cereals, that kind of thing. 
but those are also relatively difficult to make a profit. Uh, UK agriculture is an industry which has needed a lot of uh, subsidies. I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but it is clearly more important to, I think, prioritise this question of energy sovereignty, of divesting ourselves from the need for imported gas, which is, of course, driving up the cost of living for everybody, and being able to shift our economy onto cheap, green, sustainable renewables. That's clearly more of a priority than having more space for beef. Or fracking. That's what's so weird about this. I mean, it is, there does seem to be a big politics of sort of Tories just defending random bits of land. And so in the sort of housing debate, lots gets made of the fact that there's a massive shortage of housing in, in Britain. Some people disagree. I actually do think we have a shortage of, of, of overall um, housing supply in Britain. And then you get these MPs always tweeting, we've saved this random bit of dirt in our town. There's not going to be any houses there. Woohoo! And everyone takes a piss of them, I think quite rightly, because they are blocking the housing that we need. And now they're defending random bits of land so that we can't have renewable energy. The only thing the Tories are willing to build on random bits of land are fracking. You, I suppose it, you don't have a fracking mine, you have a fracking station, potentially. Maybe that's how you say that. So the, they'll only put something on the land if it pisses off left-wing people. I think that's, that seems to be the logic behind the Tories' politics on all of this. Let's go straight to our next story. Suella Braverman wants to make cannabis a Class A drug, meaning mere possession of weed could land someone with a seven-year jail sentence. The news comes via the Sunday Times, who report this. The Home Secretary has told allies she is on the same side as a group of Conservative Police and Crime Commissioners who in recent days have called for the drug to be put on a par with cocaine. A source familiar with Braverman's thinking says she is strongly opposed to calls to decriminalise cannabis which she believes sends a cultural and political signal that using the drug is acceptable behaviour. The Times goes on to say this, Braverman believes that deterrence is crucial to arresting the growing popularity of the drug among teenagers. We've got to scare people, the source said. The article was also laced with predictable digs like this. The Home Secretary has signalled she intends to go further on cracking down on middle-class drug users including through random drug testing in offices and more educational campaigns making clear the link between cocaine use, criminal gangs, and the exploitation of youngsters. There's another one where you've got real mixed messages from the Conservative Party. They're against working from home, but if you go into your office, you might be randomly tested for drugs. I think those two things are going to work against each other. Now, we should say this story has been rolled back on a bit. By the government. A Downing Street spokesperson today said there were no plans to change the law on cannabis. But that doesn't mean a tougher approach to drugs is not on the cards, a source close to the Home Secretary told the Press Association. Her position on this is that effectively cannabis has been legalised by not being policed properly. We need to focus attention on changing that. So it seems that cannabis will not be going from Class B to Class A, but we could have a pretty similarly worrying situation, which is at the moment, many police services in the UK have decided that, you know, it's not worth their time investigating or arresting people for possession of cannabis. People instead get warnings or they get told to go on probably some rather patronizing course where you're told about the danger that cannabis causes. But it seems that she wants to say, no, all of you police forces should act in a much harsher way. There should be no people getting let off here. If you find someone with cannabis, you should be 
punishing them to the full extent of the law. Which, by the way, even as a class B drug, is potentially five years in prison for possession. So the law as it stands, you can get five years in prison for possession of cannabis. I don't think many people get sentenced to that, but it seems like the Home Secretary wants practices to move in that direction. Ash, what do you make of this particular story? How worried should we be? Well, the thing is, is that it's almost a rite of passage for a new conservative Home Secretary to do a big, splashy anti-drugs crusade where they promise to crack down on both street drugs and so-called middle-class drug users. Um, It's not necessarily something which actually happens, particularly the bit about cracking down on middle-class drug use. But I think what you do see here is a reaffirmation of the UK's particular and peculiar backwardness when it comes to the issue of cannabis. So we've obviously seen huge shifts in the United States, where even the Republican Party don't think that it's electorally beneficial for them to maintain a hard line on the criminalization of cannabis. You've also seen the decriminalization, legalization of cannabis in particular states. And you now have Joe Biden pushing through legislation which changes how cannabis offenses are treated at the federal level. So that is a massive sea change. And the UK really is an outlier. And I think one of the reasons why that is, is that cannabis plays a particular role in UK policing. So effectively, what we have in the UK is a two-tier system of criminalization, where if you belong to a community who is targeted and surveilled by the police, you are in more danger of being criminalized for acts of simple possession. And if you're in a community who don't really have anything to worry about in terms of police targeting or surveillance, as long as you are not, you know, hugely conspicuous in your drug use, you're probably going to be fine. And cannabis serves as a useful pretext for police to target certain communities. So when it comes to stop and searches, the majority of stop and searches aren't being carried out because the police say they've got a a suspicion that an individual is carrying an offensive weapon. The most commonly cited reason for carrying out a stop and search is for drugs. And one of the most commonly cited grounds for suspicion that someone's carrying drugs is smell of cannabis. Now, the IOPC have, in fact, recommended that the police stop using this pretext for stop and searches. But it's actually a really useful one, because obviously, if a police officer says, now, 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 I've smelled cannabis, that's something which is impossible to prove or disprove. So it serves as a useful pretext to target, to harass, to stop and search someone who you already wanted to stop and search. and You don't have to have as tangible grounds for suspicion as carrying an offensive weapon or something like that. So it allows you to carry out some of the more discriminatory practices of policing whilst maintaining this veil of credibility. And so I think that's one of the major reasons why we've been stuck in such a regressive position when it comes to cannabis, because what the evidence shows is that legalization, having a controlled and regulated market for cannabis means that you take people out of the orbit of the criminal justice system. And then also you can start doing things like monitoring and controlling the strength of cannabis, which is available to people rather than throwing them at the mercy of a totally underground and unregulated market. That is what the body of evidence 
supports. What it also, you know, supports is that um, rather than treating cannabis as a so-called gateway drug, which is one of the things that Suella Braverman and her supporters have been talking about, is that correlation is not causation, right? If you want to look at the kind of substance abuse which accompanies things like crack cocaine and heroin addiction, well, alcohol is also there, but no one talks about alcohol as a gateway drug, only cannabis. We're quite accepting of the idea that correlation is not causation when it comes to alcohol. We don't accept that um, when it comes to cannabis. So it's a depressing reaffirmation of the UK's backwardness. I don't think it's necessarily going to result in drugs testing in offices, something which is useful for being briefed to the newspapers and nothing else. But what you might see is perhaps an escalation of these smell of cannabis stop and searches, which provide a useful excuse to target predominantly working class communities, communities of colour. If you're stopping and searching more black people, then you're also going to end up prosecuting more black people if we make the or the laws or the practices at least of criminalizing people for possessing cannabis. That's, you know, that's, that's going to be a compounding injustice. In more Suella Bradman news, the Home Secretary has been called out by a government agency for these claims she made to Tory party conference last week. Now everyone agrees that we must fight the evil of modern slavery. I'm immensely proud of this country's global leadership in protecting genuine victims. But the hard truth is that our modern slavery laws are being abused by people gaming the system. We've seen a 450% increase in modern slavery claims since 2014. Today, the largest group of small boats migrants are from Albania, a safe country. Many of them claim to be trafficked as modern slaves. That's despite them having paid thousands of pounds to come here or having willingly taken a dangerous journey on the channel. The truth is that many of, many of them are not modern slaves and their claims of being trafficked are lies. She's just a really horrible person to listen to. It's all delivered in this tone of, these are really hard truths. I don't like to say this. I feel, you know, I, I, I didn't come here wanting to speak ill of migrants, but I have to tell the truth. Well, the problem is, that wasn't the truth. And those claims have elicited an angry response from the head of the UK authority charged with investigating labour exploitation in Britain. Alicia McCaffrey said this in response to that speech. We don't see people gaming the system. That's not our experience. What we see is vulnerable people who are being exploited by opportunists and criminals. And The Guardian also report this. McCaffrey, who spent her early career fighting asylum cases for the Home Office in court, said that an increase was likely to be due to a better understanding of new laws, as well as a growth in awareness and reporting. An analysis of all modern slavery referrals concluded in the first half of this year showed that 97% of those who claimed to be trafficked were confirmed as genuine by the authorities. Ash, I want your take on this. I mean, I think... There is nothing that makes me have less respect for the Conservatives than when they stand up and not just sort of say, obviously, tar like targeting vulnerable people is really, really bad. But I just think lying about vulnerable people is sort of, there's something just, there's sort of just this extra level of twistedness about it. Standing up like you're giving these hard truths and you're literally lying about the most vulnerable people you can imagine to the country and delivering it like, I'm just here to tell you the hard truths. Screw political correctness. This has to be said. 
It's a lie. Suella Braverman is in some ways uniquely gifted as a politician because she's managed to connect her voice box directly to the id of the average radicalized telegraph reader. And so she just sort of spouts their worldview without any regard for whether or not it's truthful or not. And she said as much uh, when she was in that conversation with Christopher Hope from the Telegraph, and it was the one which was just uh, cited by Nicola Sturgeon in her conference speech, she said that her dream was to see a plane taking off to Rwanda on the front page of that selfsame newspaper, the Daily Telegraph. And I think that tells you something about what she's trying to do. It's not necessarily craft a coherent policy. It's not necessarily acting on a sincere set of beliefs that she and others hold. It's about playing to an audience of really nasty right-wing papers and feeding them kind of reinforcement of their worldview that they're likely to applaud at. And what's really interesting here about her comments about modern slavery is that she is saying the quiet bit out loud. So if you cast your mind back, the two big pillars of Theresa May's immigration policy was, of course, the hostile environment on the one hand, which resulted in the deportations of black British citizens uh, back to uh, Jamaica, which was, you know, in many cases, a country uh, that they hadn't even gone to in adulthood. And then, then the other half was talking about bolstering the UK border force in order to crack down on modern slavery. Now, in practice, this was very often two mutually supporting halves of the Theresa May immigration policy, because by bolstering the border force and using the pretext of modern slavery, you were able to have much more aggressive implementation of the hostile environment. Now, that's not me saying that modern slavery doesn't exist. Of course, it does. But it's something which is made worse by the government's own immigration policy, because when you close down safe and legal routes to coming here, where you also have visa policies which make uh, individuals more dependent on their employers, and in some cases even their traffickers, what you do is you create golden opportunities for exploitative labor platforms, all right? So that's the, the truth of the matter. And the thing that Suella Braverman has come out and said is, okay, well, we're going to talk about modern slavery as an excuse to crack down with the hostile environment by saying that these are the people gaming the system. And in, in a way, she's being honest about it. She's saying, okay, well, we're going to make these concerned noises and these empathetic noises, but actually what we're going to do is make life a lot more miserable for really vulnerable people. That was the truth of Theresa May's policy. And Suella Braverman is too stupid, I think, to realise that this is actually a deeply revealing moment. She, I don't think she clocks it. She doesn't give the impression of clocking very much, I have to say. Ash, it's so great to have you back. Thank you so much for joining me this evening. I'm so glad to be back. And uh, next week, I'll be broadcasting from Mexico City. And then I will be back with you in the People's Republic of London in early November. Thank you all for joining us this evening. We'll be back on Wednesday at 7pm. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.